True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to our 33rd case together. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. You can also listen to the new episodes through the website too, so go over to www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk and all the episodes are at the base of the home screen. The episodes are now also available on YouTube on the True Crime Fix channel. They are usually uploaded on the Friday after the release as a podcast, so please, if you do enjoy the show, spread the word as far as possible. My wife Ashley has played her part this week and researched a lot of the case, and she has told me that it has been by far the toughest for her to read and write about. Speaking of Ash, this is the last one she'll be researching for a while. Ashley has started her own side project, following a healthy eating plan focusing on losing and maintaining her weight loss. She's already lost three and a half stone or 49 pounds and is pushing to lose another four and a half stone. You can follow her journey on Instagram where she shares meals, baking, sneaky hints and tips, exercise plans and you can see all the gorgeous food that she makes for me. You can follow her at Ashley Marie 1806. That's A S H L E Y M A R I E 1806. This episode shows how we should not take this world, our friends, and our family for granted, as the people who are there at the breakfast table may not be there at dinner. Losing a loved one is one of the cruelest and hardest things that we as human beings have to cope with. However, having your entire family taken away from you doesn't bear thinking about. This, alas, is something that back in June 1996, Dr. Sean Russell had to do. This is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this episode is dedicated to the memory of the Russell family. Linda Wilcox, who was known by her friends and family as Lynn, was born in the English Midlands on the 13th of April, 1951. She was the daughter of Pete and Irene. Lynn was a determined, independent, strong, confident woman who was a highly qualified geologist and university lecturer. 
she met her husband, Dr. Sean Russell, who was a few months younger than her, in 1973, when they were both living in Cornwall. Lynn was being harassed by some male neighbours in the accommodation that she was living in, and she needed to find a new place to live. Sean at the time was living in a house with lecturers rather than students, and Lynn liked the fact that there was more of an air of sophistication about the place. The first evening that Lynn moved in, her and Sean went for a walk to Lou Harbour and stayed up late to watch the lights of the harbour coming on over the fishing boats. On that day, their love story began. Over the next two years, they realised how much they had in common and enjoyed travelling, first to the Isle of Skye off the west coast of Scotland and then a trip driving across Morocco. They married on the 19th of April 1975 at the registry office in the city of Exeter. They departed for their honeymoon, which, based on their interests, was also a studying opportunity, in May 1975 on the Windsor Castle steamship heading towards South Africa. Little did they know that South Africa was going to be their home for the next 18 years. Lynn and Sean loved South Africa and it allowed Lynn the chance to finally own a horse, something that she had wanted to do from a very young age. So she bought and trained Trixie, who helped her pass the time while studying for her doctorate at Fort Hare University. After spending some time in South Africa, they moved into the Amatola Mountains to a village called Hogsback. The house was named Innisfree and was in a clearing at the edge of the forest and on a clear day had magnificent views over the lowlands and the Eastern Cape. By 1986, Lynn had gained a distinction in her master's degree and was now lecturing in geology at Fort Hare. The issue was that Lynn and Sean were now both classed as high earners and, as they were married, they were taxed 25% more by the South African government. So after some quick maths, they both realised that a divorce, which cost the equivalent of £200, in the long run would be better off for them financially. So by mid-1986, they were no longer legally husband and wife. But this did not change their family dynamic at all. On the 27th of March, Lynn went to work as usual, despite being heavily pregnant. On that day, she went into labour with the couple's first child. Sean recalled that it was somewhat of a difficult birth, as first the anaesthetist had incorrectly administered the epidural, so not only did Lynn have to feel the pain of the birth, but she had to do so with a dead leg. It was also a difficult birth as the baby had breached, so therefore the doctors had to extract the couple's baby using a suction cup. Sean stated, Our daughter emerged at 2am on the 28th of March 1987, wrinkled and jaundiced as she was two weeks late, but also had a large suction lump on her head. Josephine Alice 
or Josie, was brought into the world, however, safe and well. In September 1987, the family decided to take another educational opportunity in Michigan in the United States. So on the way from South Africa, they were able to present baby Josie to our grandparents for the first time in the United Kingdom. On the way back home six months later, they decided that in a few years they would return to the UK to live as Josie could spend more time with her grandparents. Before that, they had more of the world to see. And between 1987 and 1991, the family visited Namibia, Botswana, Zambia and Malawi. Oh, and by the way, the majority of these travels Lynn did when she was eight months pregnant with their second child. Megan Elizabeth Russell was born on the 15th of August 1989 in Windhoek in Namibia. In 1989, Lynn also completed her first doctorate at Fort Hare University. During the Christmas period of 1990, the Russell family returned to the UK, firstly to visit the property near the Welsh city of Bangor that they had purchased but also spending time with the Sean's family in Romsey, a town in Hampshire. A couple of months before they were due to return to the UK for good, Lynn's father-in-law, Pat, committed suicide following depression from his retirement. Upon returning to live in the UK, the family took up residence for a few years in a house near Bangor in North Wales. However, in April 1994, Sean began employment as a lecturer at the Durrell Institute of Conservation and Ecology, a part of the Canterbury University in Kent. The Durrell Institute of Conservation and Ecology is a subdivision and research centre of the School of Anthropology and Conservation at the University of Kent, started in 1989 and named in honour of the famous British naturalist, Gerald Durrell. The commute for Sean was proving a challenge, travelling over 330 miles and nearly six hours, having to stay away on occasion from the family home. In late summer of 1995, the family agreed to sell their home in Wales and relocate to a small village in Kent. Chillenden is a village in East Kent between Canterbury and Deal. During this time, Lynn had given up work to care for the home, tending to the animals, the family, and had to look after the children full-time. Megan and Josie were the bubbliest children in the village, a close family friend recalled. Lynn was a very devoted and active housewife, who was very hands-on. Sean would tell how she wasn't afraid of getting her hands dirty, with gardening, decorating and even knocking down walls with a sledgehammer. If Lynn wanted something done, it would be done. The family settled into their new home, Granary Cottage, and lived an apparent idyllic lifestyle. Until one day, everything changed. 
the morning of July the 9th, 1996, was no different to any other morning. The routine of getting ready for work for Sean and the hustle and bustle of the children getting prepared for the day at school. Sean was moving office within the university building that he was working in, so he was particularly busy that day packing up boxes around his normal day-to-day work. The family regularly enjoyed breakfast together with Lynn and Sean discussing the plans for the day. Sean dropped the children to school and watched as they ran into class in their gingham dresses, red jumpers and white socks. The children had a swimming gala late that afternoon and they dragged their full school bags into class. As the working day came to an end, Sean was running some errands in the local city of Canterbury. His bicycle was taken in for repair and he also had to take back some books to the local library. Meanwhile, Lynn was taking the short, picturesque walk through the countryside from home to collect Megan and Josie from the bus which had brought them home from the local swimming gala. Since the weather had improved, Lynn enjoyed the walk. She would take the family's youngest dog, Lucy, a Shih Tzu Spaniel crossbreed, and would walk along the country lanes to Goodness Stone School. The walk took her through the fields of the Bruderhof Community Grounds. The track was called Cherry Garden Lane, a rough gravel track which led beside hedgerows and flowery cornfields. Before she left, she received a call from Sean, reminding her that a family friend, Liz, was taking the girls to the Brownies Club, a branch of the Girl Guides movement, for a taster session with her daughter and would also bring them home. At about 7pm that evening, Sean decided that he had had enough for the day and returned home getting there about 7.30. Upon Sean's return, he wasn't surprised to walk into an empty house, expecting the family to still be en route home. Sean took off his jacket and began cooking that night's dinner for the family, expecting the children to be starving after their day of extracurricular activities. As Sean was preparing the evening meal, he received a call from Liz. She said that she'd called at the family home around 5pm to collect the girls for their lift. However, there was no answer at the door. The windows were shut and the lights were off. Sean speculated that either Lucy may have run off or been injured in an accident and said that he would call around all the local vets in the area. He then decided to jump in the car and follow the route that the family would have usually taken to and from school, but to no avail. He was sure that they would not still be walking home, but he had to satisfy his mind's doubt. Sean became concerned as evening set in, and around 9pm he made the call to the police and reported his family missing. Over the next hour, he rang all of the hospitals in the local area, starting with the one in the local port town of Dover, 
each one then further afield, and the chance of success slimmer and slimmer. None of them had admitted anyone with the surname Russell. Mobile phones were not popular back in 1996, and there was no way of communicating to the family directly once they had left the house. Just after 10pm, Liz rang Sean back and inquired as to whether the family had been found. Sean by this time was now distraught and told her that they were still missing. Liz and her husband John Gregson then rushed over to the cottage to be at Sean's side, getting there at around 11pm. A team of police officers arrived shortly after at the family cottage. The commotion began to make the situation more frantic for Sean. He was questioned, given as much information on his family as he could, including the route that they took, where they were going, etc. He also provided the police with a recent photo of Lynn, Megan and Josie. Unbeknownst to Sean, Kent police had already started to assemble a search team with specially trained officers, vans and dogs when he made the first call. The thought of a woman and two young children out in the dark of the countryside was enough for them to take the matter seriously. At about 11.30, a minibus full of officers skidded into the driveway next to his house, followed by a white van which contained the dog search teams. The officers who had been questioning Sean then went out to brief the search teams on who they were looking for and, at around midnight, the search party set off in the direction of Cherry Garden Lane. Sean was instructed to stay home while the officers searched the surrounding countryside for what had happened to his family. Sean anxiously waited for the return of the police with some news. Lynn, Josie and Megan had now been missing for over six hours. At around 1am, another police car pulled into the parking area next to the house. Out of the car emerged the same two police officers who had questioned Sean earlier. Liz and John went outside to greet them and the officers spoke quietly to them. Sean, in a trance-like state, had followed them outside. Upon seeing him, they asked him to follow them back into the house. Sean recalled, I went hot and cold all over. Somehow I knew at that moment the worst had happened. As we walked towards the house, I trembled with dread. I had seen this in the movies a hundred times and now this poor policeman was making the same moves, the same body language. We sat down at the kitchen table. I was still clutching my empty mug of tea, hardly able to breathe. He spoke quickly and quietly with a quiver in his voice. I'm sorry to have to tell you, Dr. Russell, that we have found your family not far from here and there's been some sort of accident. It's very difficult for me to tell you this, but 
I'm afraid that none of them have survived. The bodies of Lynn, Megan and Josie have been found less than 200 metres from their family home. They were found in bushes on the same road Sean had driven down earlier that evening. They were unable to explain how Lynn and the two girls had passed away, however they did report suspicious circumstances. It appeared as though they had been attacked. Not only did they find the missing family, but they had also found Lucy the family dog. She had been killed as well. At around 2am, Sean accompanied the police to Deal Police Station as they wanted to ask him some follow-up questions to help push forward the investigation. Sean explained in various documentaries that during the long drive through the countryside, he felt so low, even suicidal, and prayed for a miracle to change the outcome of the day's events. He had lost everything. Upon arriving at Deal Police Station, Sean was introduced to Detective Constables Ed Tingley and Pauline Smith, who were the family liaison officers. Sean sat with them for over three and a half hours and just talked. He was asked if he minded the tape recorder being on. It was at this time it dawned on him that the police may have been treating him as more than the grieving husband, but as he had nothing to hide, he said he did not mind either way. The officers were trying to piece together the events of the tragedy going over the family's route to gain an understanding of what happened. The long and devastating process of mapping out the family's final movements. All of this with a husband and father whose existence had been shattered. Granary Cottage was now a crime scene and he was not allowed to return. Sean was left alone to get as much sleep as he could in a room in the police station. That was until about an hour later when DC Tingley came back into the interview room with a serious expression on his face. There had been a huge development in the case. In a twist of fate, one of the girls had survived. One of his children was still breathing a police officer had noticed a flicker of life in one of his children. However, it was heartbreaking for Sean as the officers were unable to identify which child had survived. She had been rushed to London's King's College Hospital during the night as she needed care that none of the local hospitals could offer and was now on a life support machine in an intensive care unit. Sean frantically asked questions to the family liaison officers. How tall was she? Did she have freckles? Did she have longer or shorter hair? Sean's prayers have been answered. This was the miracle he had asked for. Detective Constable Tingley phoned the hospital and was told that the child in care had short hair and so was most likely Megan. Due to the police needing to escort Sean to the hospital, it wasn't until nearly 9am that they left with Chief Inspector Dave Stevens having to organise transport. 
The hospital was nearly 70 miles away and they had to fight through the London rush hour traffic to get there. When they arrived at King's College Hospital in the Denmark Hill area of South London, the family liaison officer parked in a no parking zone and they went into the intensive care unit of the Variety Club's Children's Hospital. A nurse ushered them towards a bed. Lying on it, submerged beneath a mass of pipes, wires and tape, was a small, heavily bandaged figure. Her face was heavily bruised and swollen and her eyes were tight shut. But from the freckles which showed across the bridge of her nose, above the oxygen mask, Sean was able to identify her straight away. That's Josie, he shouted across the ward. Her head had been shaved in preparation for her operation, which had led to the wrong description having been given several hours before. None of the doctors at this point were willing to give a proper prognosis of her chances of survival, however. She had a major skull fracture and serious brain injury, which required surgery. The doctors said that they would be able to give a better answer within 24 hours. As Sean and the family liaison officer went to the canteen for a cup of tea, the pair were summoned back to Canterbury to begin interviews. It suddenly dawned on Sean. He still had to notify Pete and Irene that they had lost their only daughter. Kent Police had already arranged for notification to be made by their local constabulary in Birmingham, but Sean wanted to do it in person before they heard it through the media. As they sat down for a cup of tea, however, the news played out over the radio in the canteen. On the journey back to the police station in Canterbury, Sean composed himself to make the difficult call. After an afternoon of answering questions, Sean and the family liaison officer, Detective Constable Smith, returned to the family home. As mentioned earlier, Granary Cottage was cordoned off as a crime scene, so the family liaison officer was the only one who was able to enter the property. She grabbed some clothes for Sean and teddy bears for Josie. Later that evening, an update was sought from the hospital. Josie had been operated on and was now in a critical but stable condition. An appointment was made with the doctor for the following day. The media had descended on Canterbury as, to use Sean's words, so ended the worst day of his life. The next day, Sean drove again to London to have an appointment with neurosurgeon Professor Charles Polkey. He described what they did to Josie. He had had to remove several pieces of bone from the fractured skull and cut back the damaged part of the brain to the intact tissue. The surgeons then had to make a long incision down Josie's left thigh to remove membrane from the surrounding muscle in order to cover the torn cranial membrane over the brain. Josie 
also had a torn right ear which needed to be stitched and bruises from where some of the blunt force trauma had deflected onto her shoulders. The nurses who looked after her the night before had said that Josie was in a critical but stable condition and at that point was only being kept alive by the life support machine. It was a miracle that she had survived at all. As Sean was asking about where he could stay for the night, the family liaison officers broke the news to him that the chief investigating officer wanted him to travel back to Canterbury to identify Lynn and Megan's bodies. So on the 12th of July 1996, with the chief investigating officer and the coroner present, the identity of his wife and youngest daughter was confirmed. When the pathologist, Dr Gibson, had visited the scene at Cherry Garden Lane before the bodies were moved on the 10th of July, the appearance was recorded as follows. The blood of Lynn, Josie and Megan was found on debris surrounding the bodies, indicating that they had been attacked where they lay. A white cropped vest was found under Lynn's right calf which came from one of the school bags. Josie's swimsuit, covered in blood, was found next to Megan. A heavily bloodstained swimming towel was found underneath Lynn's shoulder. On this towel, the crime scene team had found red fibres not belonging to the girl's clothing. A pair of blue tights had been found tied around a tree with three knots. Had the plan been to use this as a restraint? There was also what appeared to be a 99 centimetre long shoelace. Josie's lunch bag was found near Lynn's hand and Megan's by Lynn's feet. Lucy was found laying next to Megan. Lynn had no handbag on her as she had left it at home and there was no evidence of any sexual interference on any of the victims. This left the police asking what the motive was. When the autopsies were conducted later that day, Lynn's cause of death was confirmed as blunt force trauma, with the only defensive wound being a fractured and dislocated pinky finger on her right hand. Lynn had ligature marks around her right wrist which suggested that she had been tied up when this assault had occurred. Her head had been subjected to at least 15 severe blows from a blunt instrument, part of which had a circular face with a diameter of about 3 centimetres, such as a hammer or the end of a pole. It caused extensive lacerations and bruising with at least nine fractures of the skull and considerable disruption of the brain which resulted in her death. Megan had been subjected to severe repeated and sustained violence to the head involving at least seven severe blows from a blunt object. Abrasions showed that she had been restrained by a ligature around her neck. The ligature marks 
on both Megan and Lynn were consistent with the width of the blue tights. With his daughter lying in a coma at King's College Hospital, the realisation suddenly dawned on Sean that he was going to have to notify her that her mother and sister had died. By the end of July, Josie was showing significant signs of improvement. On Saturday the 3rd of August, Josie was finally allowed out of hospital for a day trip. Sean was taking Josie back home. The whole experience was overwhelming for her. Once in the house, Josie started staring at everything. Everything must have reminded her of her mother and sister and the life that she had lost too. She quickly ran up the stairs and the wailing was growing deeper in her throat. She burst into her bedroom and her howling was growing stronger and stronger and more anguished. She rushed through to Megan's room, grabbing one of her sister's teddies, which was still on the dressing table. Then she ran into Sean and Lynn's room, where Lynn's clothes were still visible, hanging on the rail. Josie was sobbing violently now, and Sean described her moaning more like a wounded animal. Needing to document this, the family liaison officers, D.C. Smith and D.C. Tingley, grimly followed Josie around with a camera whilst her father tried to calm her down. It wasn't until Josie's friend Jasmine turned up and started having a conversation with her did she start to calm. Despite her young age, she did not draw any attention to Josie's loss of coherence and inability to effectively communicate. By her fifth week in hospital, Josie was making significant physical and mental improvements. She was managing to complete increasingly complex tasks in her therapy sessions. Six weeks after Josie had been admitted to hospital, her head wound had closed sufficiently that the doctors decided a skin graft would not be necessary. On the 9th of August 1996, Josie was finally discharged and allowed to go home. There had still been no significant advance in catching the person who had killed Lynn and Megan. The family liaison officers were trying to coax any information out of Josie that they could, but she had suffered from amnesia after the attack. BBC's Crime Watch and the ITV show Crime Monthly showed reenactments to see if they could get any witnesses to come forward. Although Josie's speech had not fully returned on Monday the 2nd of September, Josie and her father were watching a television news bulletin which made reference to the attack. She indicated that she had some recollection of what had occurred, so Sean informed the police. On Tuesday the 3rd of September, a speech and language therapist began a series of sessions with Josie designed to assist her non-verbal communication. The English newspaper The Sun 
agreed to put up a £10,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the murderer. On the 9th of September, they published an EFIT of the person that the police suspected to be guilty of the murders and the attack on Josie, which had been prepared on the instruction of another witness who saw a man leaving the scene. Sean Russell wrote this letter, which was published with the story. Dear Sir, I'm hoping that you'll be willing to publish this letter in whole or part to appeal to anyone who may be able to throw further light on the senseless killing of my wife and child in Kent two months ago. My life has been shattered and I do not know if I'll be able to rebuild it again to recover a fraction of the happiness that we had. It is still too early and too painful for me to hold my dead wife and child in my thoughts for more than a few seconds at a time, especially after having to identify them laying side by side in the mortuary, the worst experience in my life. Lynn was twice the person I was, the complete wife and mother. I shall love her forever. Megan was so young and so perfect. She carried so much of Lynn's and my hopes and dreams, only to have her life deliberately snuffed out by another human being. Mostly, whenever thoughts of the attack enter my mind, I try to thrust them away because I can't bear to think of the anguish that Lynn or the girls must have suffered watching even our dog be battered to death, let alone each other. At other times, I find myself wanting to know more to help me rationalise the evil and prepare myself to explain it to my surviving daughter, Josephine. So after the attack, when I thought my whole family had been lost, I wanted to take my own life. But my strength to carry on has come from Josie. Home, although brain damaged, is tackling the task of relearning to speak from scratch with cheerfulness and determination. During the six weeks of her rapid physical recovery in hospital, Josie showed no signs that she remembered the events surrounding the death of her mother and sister. I hoped that she might have been incapacitated early in the attack and therefore spared the horror of witnessing the actual killings. In fact, she so often scolded me for looking downcast and sad and I started to believe that she was already coming to terms with her grief. And this, in turn, helped me to rally whenever I found myself slipping back again into despair. Since returning home, however, Josie is giving many signs that she can still remember the attack. It has unfortunately become plain to see that the experience has changed her forever. She was always happy and carefree, with no fear of people or places. Now, she often recoils in horror from well-wishers who approached us in the street 
or bursts into tears and hides if someone comes to the house. She sometimes cowers and shivers in a corner if a car goes slowly past the house at night. I watch over her every minute, even when she goes just yards from the house, and this also sensitises her to the peril of our situation. Otherwise, in order to have some time to tackle the mountain of work from officialdom the house engulfed me in as a result of these murders, I have to leave Josie in the care of people who can offer her sufficient protection were we to be attacked again. We have a police guard outside our house every night and a police presence often for hours during the day. This is also a reminder of the potential threat to our safety and we cannot settle back into any normal life until the need for protection is removed. There is a similar feeling of insecurity amongst the population of the district where we live. My local postmistress summed it up when she said, The children don't come for their sweets anymore. The killer of my family has created fear throughout the community of East Kent and none of us will be able to walk happily in the country lanes. No letting the kids play out of our sight again until the murderer is caught. As I still wait for permission to bury Lynn and Megan and our dog Lucy and as I live in hope that the murderer will be found, Josie and I live in a kind of limbo, unable to comprehend or come to terms with the past and unable to think ahead to any kind of meaningful life in the future. A letter I received today summarises the thoughts of so many well-wishers. Please know that so many people are wishing you both well in your recovery and I'm very much hoping that the man will be caught soon. The whole country holds its breath for you. At the latest count, Josie and I have received over 600 cards and letters of sympathy and support. My heart goes out to those who have related stories of loss and bereavement. I want to thank friends and colleagues and hundreds of complete strangers from around the world who have written to me. And I especially want to thank the people of Nonington, where I live, and the other villages nearby who have given Josie and I so much support and encouragement. It is them who will be most helped to return to some kind of normality when the killer is caught. If the person who did this was unable to control themselves at the time of the murder, then it could easily happen again. And for the sake of everyone's safety, including the murderer himself, it is essential that he is caught or gives himself up as soon as possible. Anyone who was witness to the events surrounding the killing or anyone who knows who it might be should give this information to the police, even if it is anonymously. 
I can't believe that nobody knows who carried out this crime except the murderer himself. If someone does know, then if there is a drop of conscience or humanity left in you, please contact the police or, if you prefer, the newspaper. It's only then that Josie and I will be able to escape from the fear and begin to rebuild our shattered lives again. Lynn and Megan's funeral took place on the 5th of October 1996. Sean had decided that his wife and daughter should be buried in North Wales due to their connection to the area being the first place that they resettled upon returning to the UK. The funeral was split into two parts, with a public memorial being held at Capel Balladulin in Nantley. The chapel was packed with over 150 mourners. Josie appeared to be in high spirits due to her injury. She was not really comprehending the significance of the event. As there were so many familiar faces from her past, she would be seen going between guests and taking them to see the floral tributes that had been brought for her sister and mum. The police ensured that only two members of the media were present as the Reverend Dewey Roberts led the 45-minute service. Hymns, All Things Bright and Beautiful, and the Welsh hymn, Ye Sartirion Gwelenar, were sung by the congregation. After the ceremony, 30 friends and relatives went on with the funeral cortege to St Mary's Church at Gondolbenman. The coffins were then brought inside the church, the significantly smaller one of Megan's being adorned by a floral teddy bear. After a short service, the caskets were lowered into the ground. The grave was dug doubly deep so that Megan could be buried on top of her mother and also with Lucy. In the book Josie's Journey, which her father wrote, in the aftermath, Sean Russell called. I could hardly control the shaking of my hand as I took the earth from the undertaker's trowel and scattered it on the coffins. When it was Josie's turn to cast the earth, she approached so close to the edge of the three-metre pit that I was worried for a moment she might slip in but then I saw that she was staring long and hard at the grave. There was a pause as Josie continued to stare, unperturbed by the muffled sobs of those around her, who were turning away and catching each other in the grief, unable to bear to watch this child's last farewell to her mother and sister. Did Josie finally realise at this point that her mother and sister were really gone? Josie was getting stronger by the day and she had a few sessions with a police sketch artist to try and get the face of the man who had committed this heinous crime. Her description of the man was very close to that of the e-fit which had been drawn up by a witness 
who had seen a man driving from the lane not long after the attack was expected to have happened. By the end of 1996, Sean sold Granary Cottage and moved back to North Wales with Josie. With still no leads on the killer, the Sun newspaper increased its reward to £20,000 in a hope that someone would reveal information. In December, Women's Own magazine awarded Josie a Child of Courage Award, an award which she was presented by David Grant, one of the regulars on the BBC TV show Animal Hospital. Josie had asked for Rolf Harris to present the award, but he declined due to other commitments. Knowing what we know now, least said about that, the better. Shortly after the awards, the police got what they believed to be a lead. Sean Russell all along had told the police that he had made the first telephone call to the hospitals at around 9.30pm, starting with the district hospital at Dover. But upon further investigation, the telephone receptionist recalled a call around 6pm looking for a Mrs Russell. DCI Stevens decided to press Sean on this fact, and this revelation was one of amusement for him as he had not returned home from work by 6 o'clock. After a gruelling period of interrogation, however, this lead was dismissed. The interview process of Josie was slow and painstaking for the police, but by mid-May of 1997, the following information was known. At 4pm, Josie and Megan had returned on the school bus from their swimming gala in Canterbury. Lynn and Lucy were waiting for them there, and they started on their normal walk home across the rape fields behind Goodnessstone, through the Woodpecker Wood, and over the gate onto the by-road that led past the entrance to Cherry Garden Lane. They walked down the lane to where it curves to the right and heard a car behind them. They stood aside from the car and Josie waved at the driver as he passed. His face was grim and he did not acknowledge their greeting. As he passed, they walked around the corner to find the car parked broadside across the track. It was a few yards before the entrance to Mount Effiam House where Lynn and the girls would have turned off the lane along the footpath to the Bruderhof community grounds. The man got out of the car and reached through the back window for a hammer on the rear shelf. He faced Lynn and the girls and according to Josie, he demanded money. Lynn was not carrying any money with her on the school walk and told him that she had none. The man continued to threaten them and Lynn asked him if he would come home with them and she could find some money for him there. The man said no. The police had evidence to the effect that the man had grabbed Megan and double-looped a bootlace or a drug tourniquet around her neck to hold her. Lynn 
was rendered powerless by the hostage-taking of her younger daughter. Josie said that she had run away when Lynn was attacked and when Lynn was, in quotes, nearly dead. Forensic evidence and Josie's testimony pointed to the fact that the murderer had shepherded them into the bushes and seated them all on the ground. He methodically tore the damp towels from the girls' swimming bags into strips and with these and his own shoelaces he bound and gagged them. He tied Josie to a tree, asking her if her bindings were not too uncomfortable. He then walked behind each of the victims in turn and rained down blows on their heads with his hammer until he felt he'd done enough. Josie remembered hearing Lynn's dying cries. He handed out the same treatment to the dog Lucy as well. The whole encounter lasted about 15 minutes. In July 1997, Crime Watch again ran a reconstruction of the attack on what was the first anniversary. In September 1997, Josie was asked to come back to Kent as the police had a suspect in custody that they wanted her to identify. Josie rushed through the process, whether or not it was the trauma of having to potentially face her attacker, but she did state that she did not recognise anyone. The other witness that they had there, however, had picked out number seven from the lineup. Ladies and gentlemen, if things have not been complicated up until now, this is where things start to become a little bit more confusing. Bearing in mind I'm reporting on only the facts and not passing any opinions, just like the Kotal case that I covered, I will let you make up your own mind from here on in. On the 14th of July 1997, just over a year after the murders, Michael Stone was arrested at his mother's home in Gillingham and from that date forward he was detained in custody. He was born on the 17th of June 1960 in Tunbridge Wells and was well known to the police. His criminal career had started in 1972 at the age of just 11 when he was found guilty of theft in Maidstone Juvenile Court. During his 24-year career, he had been found guilty of the following. Three counts of some form of theft of property. Nine counts of taken and driven away, a motoring offence which usually involves being in control of a vehicle that you do not have permission to drive. Four counts of driving without insurance, three counts of driving underage, two counts of forgery, actual bodily harm, robbery in possession of a firearm, and then the single offences of deception, arson, grievous bodily harm, wounding with intent, and possession of a prohibited air weapon. He also had a history of mental disorders, drug abuse and violence 
and he had received treatment and supervision from various agencies. In particular, since his release from prison in 1992, he had been seen by various psychiatric services in Kent and had been detained under the Mental Health Act on one occasion. He had also received treatment and supervision from a drug addiction clinic. Between 1994 and 1996, he had been the subject of a probation order. Stone was arrested after a tip-off to the BBC One's Crime Watch UK programme. A friend thought he looked like the EFIT which had been shown on the television programme and had noticed him acting strangely. Another friend had seen him wearing blood-soaked clothes on the day after the murders. Stone had explained this away by saying that he had been involved in a fight. He was the man who was not identified by Josie during the identity lineup. On the 23rd of September 1997, and whilst he had been held in custody awaiting the identity parade, Stone had made a request to the prisoner governor to be moved into the segregation unit to, quote, escape from the prisoners who were making up stories about his involvement with the crime. He was placed in a cell next to a heroin addict named Damien Daly. Daly was in the cell on the bottom floor of the segregation unit. Other prisoners were shouting at Stone and Daly told them to be quiet. As Daly had somewhat of a reputation of being a hard man in prison, his instructions were obeyed. Stone then, according to Daly, spoke to him by the means of a pipe which ran along the rear wall and to the adjoining cells. On the 26th of September 1997, Daly gave the following information to Detective Constable Paul Fippin of the Kent Police and it was witnessed by Detective Sergeant Bowler which contained this alleged confession. I quote, It was quiet for a while, then I heard Stone call out my surname. He said, You're my friend. I believe he said this because I made the others shut up. He then said, If it wasn't for that slag, I'd be okay. He said she picks him. I didn't understand what he meant at first because I understood the murder involved a woman and a child who had died so I couldn't understand who picked him. I understood he may have been talking about an identity parade but at the time couldn't understand who would have been a witness. I told him to shut his mouth and he stopped speaking. I had been given a copy of the Tuesday the 23rd of September Daily Mirror by the prisoner above me while Stone went quiet. I began to read the first two pages when Stone began to speak to me again. He said something about smashing an egg and that inside it was all mush. I stopped reading the newspaper to listen to him. He then said I tied them up with the towels but I didn't need to because they were already out of the game. He said that the towels were wet. 
He said he'd been smelling the swimming costume and he was aroused and he had the greatest orgasm he'd had in his life. He said something about a dog making more noise than them. He continued calling people slags and I don't know anything about an animal and I thought he was referring to a female as a dog. He said that one of them had tried to get away but didn't get far. He hit someone and tried to get someone to watch but she wouldn't watch and closed her eyes. So he hit her again and she squirmed. She said one of the girls was disobedient. He said something about blood. He said he touched her over her clothing and referred to them again as slags and hose. He spoke about them with towels and something about shorts or shoelaces or shoes. Daly was not the only prisoner to come forward and say that Stone had spoken to him. In 1997, Barry Thompson was nearing the end of a two-year sentence and for a few days he was employed as a prisoner trusted cleaner in the segregation unit at HMP Elmley where Stone was being held on remand. Thompson gave evidence that on a few occasions he spoke briefly to Stone. Stone told Thompson that he was in for robbing a man of a thousand pounds and for burglary and he was going for an identification parade on that Friday. He also said that the police were rushing through some tests and that Thompson should not judge him until the results came back. The next day, whilst exercising in the yard, Stone went over to Thompson, who was in the kitchen, and, as described by Thompson, he looked menacingly at him, with his eyes rolling back into his head, and said, I made a mistake with her, I won't make the same fucking mistake with you. On the 2nd of October 1998, Michael Stone appeared at Maidstone Crown Court where he pleaded not guilty to two counts of murder and one of attempted murder. The case against him at the trial rested principally on the evidence of the alleged admissions he was said to have made to fellow prisoners while on remand. There was also circumstantial evidence showing that Stone's familiarity of the area his general whereabouts and possession of a vehicle and the disposal of his clothes. The Crown sought to introduce evidence of his behaviour as witnessed by a community psychiatric nurse and others shortly before the murder. Although this evidence was ruled inadmissible, there was a degree of discussion in open court in the absence of the jury. A friend of Stone's Shuri Bat was also called to testify that she remembered seeing Stone a year earlier wearing a blood-stained t-shirt at around the time of the murders. On the 23rd of October 1998, after nearly 15 hours of deliberation, the jury, by a 10-2 majority, found Stone guilty on all three counts and he was given three life sentences. Part of the reason that I have not spent a lot of time on this trial is because this is not the end of the story. On the 24th of October 1998, 
the day after the jury had returned their verdict. Thompson began to contact national newspapers, telling journalists from The Mirror, The Sun and later The Daily Mail that he had given false evidence at trial. He said that whilst it was true he had met Stone in prison, he had said nothing incriminating to him and had only said otherwise because there was pressure put on him by the police. In November 1998, Thompson was arrested on suspicion of perjury, but the charge wasn't pursued. On November 6, 1998, Stone's defence team lodged a formal application to appeal and were said to be hopeful and optimistic at their chances of being granted leave to appeal. Their leave was granted on the 18th of January 2001 on the account of Barry Thompson's retraction. On the 6th of February, the Court of Appeal ruled in the light of doubts over a key witness, the appeal must succeed. So, on February 8th, 2001, the Court of Appeal quashed Stone's convictions and ordered a retrial stating that the conviction of the appellant is unsafe as the consequence of the witness Thompson retracting his evidence. On the 5th of September 2001, Stone's retrial began at Nottingham Crown Court. His sister Barbara and mother Jane were in the public gallery. Before he was brought into the docks, the court heard that Stone was unhappy because the handcuffs that he had to wear were too tight. On the opening day of the case, more than 30 potential jurors were asked three questions before a panel of 12 was selected and sworn in. Mr Justice Paul, the trial judge, asked them, 1. Whether they or any of their close family had connections to the County of Kent. 2. Whether any of them had read the publication called Josie's Journey by Sean Russell or its serialisation in the Reader's Digest. And finally three, whether they were free to cover a trial of at least four weeks. Following their answers and the legal discussions, a jury of nine men and three women were sworn in. The 12 jurors were told to return to court at 9am on Monday the 10th of September. The defence barrister was William Clegg QC and the prosecutor was Nigel Sweeney QC. On the opening day of the trial, the court was told that there was no forensic evidence at the scene to link Stone to the crime, but the prosecution said that the friend had said they'd seen them with blood on their t-shirt after the attack. Neither Josie nor another witness had picked him out of an ID parade. In fact, only one of three had. Soon after the attack, a woman had described how she'd driven behind a man who seemed extremely agitated. Mr Sweeney said he kept looking at her through his mirror and she got a significantly good look at him to make an e-fit of the man she had seen. He also revealed another witness had seen a man in an agitated state throw away a bloodied towel. 
Mr Sweeney told the court that Stone had given graphic details of the attack to fellow convict Damien Daly, who was also on remand in the Kent prison. And this was the confession that I read earlier. Mr Sweeney said Stone knew the area as he'd lived there as a child in care. Mr Sweeney said, you'll hear in due course that he told lies about his knowledge in the police interviews. He tried to say he did not know the area as well as he did. He added that Stone also kept tools, including hammers, in his car. He had also burnt his clothes after the attack. On the second day of the trial, statements by Sean Russell were read out to the jury. He described the route taken by Lynn when she was collecting the children from school and where the three were attacked. The defence put forward that the Crown's case rested on the evidence of Damien Daly. On the 12th of September, Isabel Cole described how she was returning from a shopping trip when she passed a man on a country lane just outside of Chillingdon. She said, He was just standing there. He had dark trousers and he had something in his right hand, holding something down beside him. As I got close, I could see that it was a hammer in his hand. He was white. His skin was so white for the time of year, he looked sick. Then it was time for Anthony Rayfield, who saw a man acting jittery near some woods a mile from the crime scene. He later returned to investigate and found a string bag at the top of a bank in some bushes containing what looked like a stained towel. He left the bag there until the next day when he heard about the attack and contacted the police. The examination found that this was the blue swimming towel that was used by either Josie or Megan for swimming and that it had been torn into six strips. The junior prosecuting barrister, Mark Ellison, then told the court that the six strips were heavily bloodstained. He added that at least two of the strips contained Lynn's blood, which had also been found on the string bag which belonged to one of her daughters. Then it was time for the evidence from Josie. During an interview that was shown to the court, which was recorded on the 10th of May 1997, Josie told how she'd seen the e-photograph of the possible killer which had been published in the newspaper. DC Pauline Smith was one of the family liaison officers, but also was one of the specially trained officers who spent hours trying to coax the information out of Josie about the attack. In the video, she asked Josie, I want to make really sure that this face is the face of the man that you saw in the woods. And Josie replied, yes. The following month, another video interview was carried out, and this was also shown to the court, but Josie seemed less convinced in this video. On the 13th of September, the police surgeon described the moment that he realised that Josie Russell was still alive. In a statement, 
Dr. Michael Parks explained how he'd found Josie lying at her mother's feet. Mr. Sweeney said, She had also been subjected to severe, repeated and sustained violence to her head. Other witnesses told the jury that Stone was a drug user who injected heroin five or six times a day and used shoelaces, belts and ties as tourniquets. On the 18th of September, the jury of nine men and three women, the judge, the lawyers and Stone spent time at Cherry Garden Lane, where the family had been found. The jurors were also taken to Rowling Court, where the bloodied rags had been found. They were also taken to where Isabel Cole had said that she'd seen the man carrying the hammer. On the 19th of September, Damien Daly told the court about the confession. On the 20th of September, the jury heard that the bootlace found near the murder scene could have been used as a drug tourniquet. Forensic scientist Roger Ide said the 99cm lace had three knots tied in it. The court had already heard that Stone was a drug user. The black braided lace was found near a copse on Cherry Garden Lane. Mr Ide who was an expert with 25 years of experience in knots, told the court he initially thought that the lace had been used as a ligature, but he said he'd changed his mind when he thought about how drug addicts use them as tourniquets. Under cross-examination by William Clegg QC, Mr Ide admitted the maximum pressure he had used to stretch the lace was far more than a drug user might have used to tie a tourniquet. On the 24th of September, the court was told that samples of blood, hair and fibres that were discovered at the scene were not a match for stone. Forensic scientist Roger Mann told the court that the conditions for collecting evidence, however, at the scene were less than ideal because it was out in the open. He said... It was very difficult because we had a moving scene, because of the dry leaves and because outside there is no flat surfaces. Mr Mann went on to say that hairs that had also been found at the scene did not originate from Lynn, Megan or Josie or from Stone. But he did state that just because they did not come from any of those did not mean that it came from another killer. He said, there's a number of explanations. They could have been picked up from the school where I understand the children have been swimming. Mr Mann also said that they were unable to trace the source of red fibres that were found on Megan's towel and Josie's blue tights. The jury were also shown photographs of the girls' lunchboxes where there were two fingerprints Expert Michael Pass had told the court that one print was unable to throw up any clues, while the second was so bad quality that they couldn't get a match. The only conclusion that could be reached from this print was the fact that the person had a loop pattern. James Fraser, the forensic scientist responsible for combing the murder scene, 
said that there was proof that the murderer had left with blood dripping from the murder weapon. Mark Ellison for the prosecution also said that there was no medical evidence of any sexual interference with any of the victims, nor any evidence of ejaculation. On the 4th of October 2001, the jury again found Michael Stone guilty of the three charges by a majority of 10 to 2. The exact same result from the first trial. Stone showed little emotion as the foreman of the jury announced the verdicts. His sister Barbara, who had fought tirelessly in a bid to clear her brother's name, said, Not again, as the verdict was read out. Mr Justice Paul told Stone that his crimes were horrific. Michael Stone, you've been convicted of three terrible crimes, he said. There is no need for me to develop that description further. Stone cried out, It wasn't me, Your Honour. I did not do it. Stone was again handed three life sentences, which he would serve at HMP Full Sutton in Yorkshire. So just to bring you up to date, Stone maintained his innocence after the conviction. On the 1st of March 2004, he was given the right to appeal by Mr Justice Treacy at the Royal Courts of Justice. Lord Justice Rose dismissed the appeal in January 2005. The judge said, although Daly's evidence was crucial to the prosecution's case, it was not the only evidence which linked Stone to the killings. He said that circumstantial evidence, including the fact that Stone always carried a hammer in a tool bag in his car, he was seen by a witness with blood on his t-shirt and a blood-stained boot lace was found near the bodies, similar to those used by Stone to raise his veins in his arm. Stone also had a previous for convictions for violence, including using a hammer to commit grievous bodily harm. And he revealed that the guilt was not in doubt. In 2014, Damien Daly himself was convicted of the murder of Gus Altman and it was described as a drug deal gone bad. Investigations by the Kent and Essex Serious Crimes Directorate found that Gus Altman had travelled down to Folkestone from London together with some associates on Wednesday the 19th of February 2014. Shortly before 7.30pm, they had headed towards the home address of Daly in London Street. Shortly after knocking on the door, Gus Altman had returned to his silver Audi, chased by Daly, and Gus was stabbed seven times. He received medical treatment, both in the ambulance and by staff at the William Harvey Hospital in Ashford, but at 9.29pm he was pronounced dead. Daly was sentenced to life in prison on the 18th of December 2014. In November 2017, BBC Wales ran a story in which they claimed that notorious serial killer Levi Belfield, who was currently serving two whole life terms for the murders of schoolgirl Millie Dowler, Amelie Delarange 
and Marsha MacDonald had confessed to the murder of Lynn and Megan. The man it claimed that Belfield had confessed to wished to remain anonymous. He too had been convicted of serious offences and was housed in the same high security wing as Belfield. This was not the first time that Belfield had been linked to the Russell murders. There had also been a war of words between Michael Stone and Levi Belfield, who were both behind bars at Durham's Franklin Prison. A BBC investigation of the Russell murders, entitled The Chillingdon Murders, was broadcast in June 2017, and a panel of experts were given access to all the files to re-examine the evidence. They concluded that despite advancements in DNA, there was still no forensic link to Stone and it was likely that another man was at the scene. It was this two-part programme which was said to have prompted the alleged confession. In the minutes leading up to the broadcast, Belfield was reportedly physically unable to control his shaking and it was put down to him being anxious about watching the programme. Following many days of lengthy conversations, the unnamed prisoner said he had with Belfield, he had made notes and reported on what he had been told to his solicitor, a police officer and a prisoner liaison officer. The prisoner said, Belfield said, I've never told anyone this before. I killed another child and got away with it. The police were never even close. Belfield is alleged to have told him that he had spotted the Russells walking home by chance and he had stopped. He said he approached them with a hammer in his hand and Lynn begged him not to hurt the children. Belfield said, the prisoner claimed, he struck her first and then Josie, the dog, and then Megan. The prisoner said, I said, if I were him, I would have been a bit more careful, saying it was risky being so close to the road's entrance as anybody passing by could see. He reassured me that the attack was far enough up the lane that it couldn't have been seen from the road. But even though he wore gloves, Belfield was reportedly worried about DNA advances, saying, my life in jail would be over if they could prove it was me, and it would tear his mother in two. On the basis of this confession, which, when challenged about it, Belfield denied, Stone's lawyers put in an application to the Criminal Cases Review Commission in 2017. On the 6th of November 2019, this appeal was again turned down. Stone is still challenging the decision to this day. As for the Russells, after the attack, Josie had to learn to speak again and had a titanium plate in her head. She decided she was going to pursue a career as an artist and she graduated from a college in Bangor with a degree in graphic design in 2009. Josie started making and selling greeting cards at art fairs 
before moving on to producing textile landscapes, which now command up to £500 each. Speaking in 2014, Josie said, If I say I'm thinking about the future all the time and think positive, it doesn't mean that I've forgotten about my past. I do think about it, and I think of all the happy memories. But I don't like to think about it too much. I know how life used to be, but I have to think positive and don't want to dwell on it. Two decades on, she is now engaged to fire alarm engineer Ewan Griffith and plans to become a hands-on parent like her mum. When she first met Ewan, her future fiancé, he did not know anything about Josie's ordeal. She said, He asked me about my mum once and I just told him that she had died. Later his parents told him the full story, but we never talk about the past. It's better for me to just get on with the present. So that's it for this week. I posted this on social media last week, but for those of you who don't yet follow me, just to let you know that due to the current world pandemic, my actual work that I am paid for has increased threefold, therefore I'm having to spend longer hours on it. As a result, you may find that I have to do shorter broken up stories over the coming weeks as I'm struggling to find time to write, record and edit the cases. This will only be a temporary measure and may not happen at all, but I just feel as though the day-to-day is engulfing me at the moment. Thank you all for your support to date and your patience over the coming weeks. Please remember if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everybody on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. Please also visit the website www.truecrimefixpodcast.co.uk. Also, a reminder that the podcast has a Patreon page, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast if you want to follow me on instagram please search true crime fix also if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show contact me through the contact us page on the website or true crime fix podcast at gmail.com that's true crime fix podcast at gmail.com until next time Stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who, or what, might be coming around the next corner. Take care everyone. (laughs) 